even the word taste, I almost now avoid it. I think it's a loaded word. There's a real trap and kind of an old think to just saying, this is good taste and this is what we show and this is bad taste and we don't do it. Um, because I, I just don't think it's modern. You know, I don't, I think it closes out a lot of possibilities and a lot of people. And in the end, AD really is about people. It's about the people living in the homes because what do people talk about and what do they remember? Not a sofa or a table. They remember the feeling they got from the magazine, the people in it, the energy. Hi, I'm Dan Rubenstein, and this is The Grand Tourist. I've been a design journalist for nearly 20 years, and this is my personalized guided tour through the worlds of fashion, art, architecture, food, and travel, all the elements of a well-lived life. And welcome to the first episode of Season 8. This is officially our biggest season ever of weekly episodes that will take us all the way into the holidays. And yours truly has had an amazing summer interviewing such an incredible group of tastemakers and visionaries from around the world. But that's not all. We're also proud to announce our new digital home for The Grand Tourist, thegrandtourist.net. There you'll find transcripts of each episode as they're available, as well as images and links to everything we've talked about. We'll also have a ton of new and inspiring content from outside the world of audio, as well as a newsletter called The Grand Tourist Curator, where you can stay up to date on new episodes and get a little cheat sheet to all of the important and inspiring things that cross my desk. So make sure you sign up today with your email at thegrandtourist.net. And now, on to the program. Today, the common wisdom says that it's influencers and celebrities that call the shots in determining what's moving the culture forward, and that the age of the print magazine editor is firmly in the past. My guest today proves that wrong. As arguably the world's most influential tastemaker in design, she sets the tone for a global collection of magazines, websites, and yes, wildly influential social media platforms from Instagram to TikTok, and brings a sophisticated eye and open mind to an entire industry, Amy Astley. If you're an avid listener of the podcast, you probably already know her as the editor-in-chief of Architectural Digest and the global editorial director for the magazine's international editions from France and India to China and Mexico. While the title is more than 100 years old, it became the juggernaut it is today under the direction of editor Paige Rents, who ran the book as a trade bible in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Connie Nass, the publisher of Vogue, GQ, and Vanity Fair, acquired the title in 1993. From the 80s till today, if you were published in its pages, you're in the club, and your career, whether you're a designer, architect, or boutique shop proprietor, is given a sign of approval most would kill for. And when a designer makes it onto the legendary list called the AD100, well, your success is all but assured. Amy Astley took over the publication in 2016, and in some circles, was criticized for not having enough of a design background, which she and I will get into. But today, she's proven the naysayers wrong with a brand that thrives both online and off, by embracing the realities of the current media landscape. Like many editors, publishing came to Amy almost by accident. She grew up in a college town in Michigan and originally pursued ballet as her first passion. When that didn't work out, she found herself at Connie Nast, working at the late and most beloved magazine, not to mention my alma mater, House and Garden. From there, she went to Vogue where she covered beauty and then on to launching the highly successful and critically claimed Teen Vogue before taking the reins at AD. Full disclosure, I do contribute to AD on occasion, 
and we have many connections and former co-workers in common. Hi, Mayor. I caught up with Amy Astley from her office in New York to discuss her youth as a hopeful ballerina, how she cherishes her formative days as a young editor covering design, what life is really like in the trenches of American Vogue, what she learned about youth culture creating Teen Vogue, and how she faced down the peanut gallery to ensure that Architectural Digest will be fluffing pillows and exploring incredible homes for another 100 years. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate you taking the time during this, um, as we all know, in, an insane summer for everybody. But of course, summer is the busiest time for those in the magazine business getting ready for all those big fall issues that everybody loves. And, um, you know, of course, I know you professionally, uh, um, like many people in the design world do. Um, but I don't really know too much about, um, you know, your early life. And I heard that you grew up in a college town in the Midwest. Is that right? Um, yeah, I grew up in East Lansing, Michigan. My, it's a college town, Michigan State. And my dad was a professor of art, drawing and painting, studio art. So, um, and he is an artist. And I grew up around artists all and professors of all kinds of esoteric things like, you know, Venetian history, which isn't esoteric, but that, that I, one of my dad's best friends actually built gondolas, you know. Oh, so wow. I grew up in a, in a creative and I'd say intellectual um, environment with my parents. And I fell in love with New York when I was young through my father who brought me here a lot. Um, he, as I mentioned, was an artist and we, li we actually lived in New York for a while when I was young. Mm. And um, from age 11, I fell in love with New York City. And I was trained as a professional ballet dancer also. And I just was in New York as much as I could be. So I, I moved here as, as soon as I was out of school. And so what did you study uh, in school? Yeah, English literature. Okay. I realized when I was 18 that I really just wanted to be a professional dancer, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, but I sort of had that crisis at 18 that I, I realized I was going to be in a regional company. I wasn't going to be in the New York City Ballet. And um, I went to a really great ballet school in Pennsylvania called Central Pennsylvania Youth Ballet that's trained a lot of great dancers. And, you know, I had friends who were really making it. But I, it was just that it's very harsh world. It's a very harsh world, ballet or like elite, elite athletics, you know, and you just, you just know, it's very clear if you're going to make it or not make it. And wisely, I realized that I was always going to be in the back row, uh, you know, in a regional company. And, and, um, and, and I, I kind of had a crisis at that point and I decided, oh, I guess I better go to college, you know, but I studied English lit and I can say I've always been a bookworm from childhood a huge bookworm, a big reader and writer, and um, probably, you know, next to sort of movement, um, storytelling has always been my other passion. What kind of books did you read growing up? Oh, God, I just read everything. You know, I was, I was voracious. I lived near a public library, and I used to walk there every weekend and get a pile of books, you know, seven or eight books. And I would literally, especially in the summer, literally read them over the week and then take them back the next weekend. And I think reading taught me how to write, you know, and how to edit maybe more than being an English major or anything like that. Um, but as a kid, I, I mean, I was reading everything. I can remember cycling through like the Chronicles of Narnia, you know, multiple times or um, even like as a little girl, like Little House on the Prairie, I was fascinated by the, you know, Laura Ingalls Wilder and this family who everything that they consumed or wore or ate, you know, everything that they did it by hand. You know, I was always fascinated by that. Um, 
And then obviously I was an English major in college and graduated to, I guess, maybe more sophisticated literature, but I'm still such a reader. I read the New York Times every day, <laughs> thousands of emails per day. That, that, count, that counts, I think. Yeah. I, I hope that it counts. <laughs> it's it not the but... best kind of reading for your soul. That that is that is absolutely true. Um, <laughs> and when you know school ends and you you come to New York City, is that that was your sort of dream to kind of come to New York directly, or is that? Yes, I was desperate to get back to New York. I was, you know, my whole life in high school, I was constantly negotiating with my parents to let me move to New York um, without them, so I could pursue my ballet training here rather than in the Midwest. And what year was that when you when you came here? I came here in 1989. As soon as I was out of college, um, I graduated early from college. I was desperate to get out, and I came um, directly to New York. I lived with friends of my parents who were very good friends of mine too. They were um, artists. And one, uh, the man had been a student of my, my father's, one of his favorite students. And I knew them very, very well. So these very wonderful, kind, generous people, I lived in their loft on the Bari, which was pretty rough back in the day. And um, I uh, pursued working in publishing because I, I, as I said before, I love storytelling, you know, and I, uh, along with dance, I was always intrigued and fascinated really by words and pictures and how they work together, telling a story. Um, so I felt the magazines, you know, were the right place for me. Um, I liked that mix of words, text, and visuals, which, you know, as I've told you about my childhood, I think it makes sense. You know, it was an intensely visual. I was in museums and galleries my whole life. You know, my brothers and I always were sort of like, oh, more museums, more galleries. But, you know, that stuff as a child is so great to to be taken everywhere and told about art from a young age. You know, my father's obsessed with art. So um, I think it's natural that I moved into this world where I could take my love of reading, of text, of words, of writing. I, I, I am a writer. I am an editor. I appreciate writers a lot. And then my love of visuals and marry them in magazines. So my first job, I, I landed the job at House and Garden. I was the editor-in-chief, Nancy Novograd's assistant. I was her second assistant. There was a first named Elaine Hunt. And Elaine had been uh, Deanna Vreeland's assistant. And um, Elaine trained me. So I was trained by an, an assistant of Deanna Vreeland's. And um, I knew nothing. I was just like this kid from the Midwest. But the people at House and Garden were, it was a magical place, Dan. Like a life-changing place. I often talk about Wendy Goodman and her and Nancy Novogratz, and Dana Cowan, and Charles Gandy, who's no longer with us, Carolyn Solis, Jacqueline Gonet, Elizabeth Serbeoff, um, Martin Fuller, like there were, you know, just so many people who were formative in my career. They were very kind to me. Katie Marin, Sanga Mortimer. So after, so I was trained for about five years at House and Garden. It was amazing training. All those names I just reeled off, those were the just those were just the editors I worked with. They took me under their wing. They were incredibly kind, really generous people, very caring. There weren't that many assistants, you know, and there weren't that many young people. People were always saying to me, Oh my gosh, you're a unicorn. You know, they well, I don't think people said unicorn back then. They found me very unique because most young people weren't that interested in decorating. Um, and so people were very generous. They were very kind. I mean, Dana Cowan took me under her wing and really trained me. Um, Margot Goralnik, you know, um, Susan, I'm just losing Susan's last name. I was an amazing photo editor. These people were just at the top of their game and they, they trained me like they all trained me. 
Although I physically, I started working with, I worked with Nancy and then eventually Nancy promoted me and I worked for Carolyn Solis, who's a great decorating editor. And I worked for Wendy Goodman. Um, and I worked for Stephen Drucker, you know, like I worked for a lot of people, a lot of people. I was spread around. I was helping everybody. No, there were no assistants, you know, it was run on a shoestring. It was lean. And I just learned and learned and learned. And I really respected all the editors. Um, and in fact, the reason I ended up at Vogue when House and Garden closed, and House and Garden closed, by the way, when Mr. Newhouse bought AD. That is the reason House and Garden closed. And I know that because I was called into the room where it happened with him and James Truman. I was there. I heard it with my own ears and I was present. And so I'm telling you facts. He said, as you all know, I have purchased Architectural Digest, which was based in LA, and House and Garden is redundant. So, um, you know, that was it. It was over. It was a very harsh thing to to reckon with, but I was young. I was about 25 and I, I understood, okay, I feel like I'm with my family, but I'm not. This is business, you know. I never forgot it because it was very painful. I mean, I being so young could kind of rebound, but the more mature editors were, you know, they were absolutely devastated. They had invested decades of their life in this and and it was, you know, they had families and many more, you know, responsibilities than I did. Um, so I think it was a formative experience, but in, in that sense, which is a harsh sense, but in the more happy, optimistic sense, I was really trained in decorating there. I was always in the D&D &D building, um, with the fact that we got literal fabric swatches to try to, you know, do the credits. It was, it was a pre-internet age. Before we return to the program, a word from our sponsor, Lumens. We're living in a golden age of design, where architects, interior designers, and estates have access to nearly every brand in the world. As this magazine veteran knows all too well, a trusted source is essential to any successful design story. That's where Lumens comes in. As the preeminent destination for grand tourist-worthy lighting, furniture, and accessories, Lumens carries designs from more than 350 global brands. With in-house service and account specialists that are your personal connection to good design. Lumens curates authentic designs that run the gamut from iconic pieces to of-the-moment exclusives by designers fans of this podcast will certainly recognize, like Piero Lissoni, Philippe Stark, and Colin King. One of my favorite stories in the September issue of AD this month is the house of John Legend and Chrissy Teigen and their delightful children's room with beds that look like safari jeeps with giant stuffed giraffes. On lumens.com, you might not find stuffed animals, but you will find children's chairs from the most iconic designers and brands. After all, isn't a good sense of design important even from a young age? On lumens.com, you'll spot Panton chairs in various colors, Emiko Navy chairs in various shades, and my favorite, a special version of Cartel's ghost chair that has illustrations on the seat back. To make sure you raise your little future collectors the right way, visit lumens.com. That's L-U-M-E-N-S dot com. Before we return to Amy Astley, a word from our sponsor, Janice AC. In the world of design, an appreciation of the outdoors is more important in our lives than ever before. Enter Janus AC. As a leader in outdoor furniture for 45 years, the brand combines unparalleled levels of craft and engineering to create works by the world's best designers and architects, from Philippe Stark and Paolo Navone to Patrizia Urquiola. But beyond the incredible products and designs, Janus AC provides a level of service and expertise that's always best in class. 
One of the latest introductions from Janus AC are two new designs to Matisse Teak, its lounge and modular seating collection, namely the armchair and chaise lounge. Crafted from premium teak, the armchair takes the brand's elegant and versatile collection and scales it down perfectly for outdoor dining. The chaise even has integrated wheels for mobility and lies completely flat for those moments in the sun. Engineered to last in the elements, the Matisse Teak Collection is one our guest today, Amy Astley, would probably recommend for either a gregarious Beverly Hills manse or a stately balcony in Manhattan. I'm thinking this would make for a great double-page feature spread. Am I right, Amy? Give me a call. To have your own elegant dining experience outdoors on either coast, make an appointment at your local Janus AC showroom or visit JanusAC.com. That's J-A-N-U-S. E-T-C-I-E.com. And and I'm curious, like, what do you remember from the design world at that time? How would you characterize that sort of house and garden universe? You know, it was you know? magical. I worked with some of the same decorators I work with today, you know, Stephen Sills and Ford. Um, uh, uh, one of my best friends was Michael Formico, who passed away about three years ago, but I met him there. Um, you know, there were, um, I worked with Peter Marino, you know, I worked with Charlotte Moss, I worked with Bunny Williams. So really the elder statesmen now, because this is going back a long time, um, those people were certainly in their prime and they've continued to be, which is an amazing thing about the design and architecture world, quite different to fashion. You know, it's few and far between that you see fashion people have that kind of longevity, you know, we're talking 30 years, you know, or, or more really. Um, but so I, I saw a lot of the same people, but of course the world's opened up and there are many new ones and that's exciting. But I, I love that the field has room for both the kind of elder statesmen and new people. Um, and it's faster moving now, but it's, it's still a slow moving world design. I mean, you know, it takes a long time to build a building or renovate an apartment or decorate. It's expensive, takes a lot of expertise and, um, I guess the reason I'm saying that is after House and Garden, I moved into fashion. So I'm always comparing the fashion world and the design world because they they have so many similarities and so much to teach each other. But I I like the sli- slightly slower move of of the design world. Um, and your question was, how do I think it's changed, or what was my perspective then? It was a very European product, House and Garden. It was American and European, you know. And Architectural Digest felt very L.A. to us, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it was very L.A. Lighting, re- shoots yes. at night, pillow chops. We were always yes. like, oh, oh, oh. Yes, it was you know, very... We, our AD didn't send its own stylist. They didn't do their own flowers. Um, Paige Renz was an amazing business person. Uh, the, she didn't spend money there. Um, and the photos were submitted by the, you know, designers and architects. And House and Garden was, we produced all the shoots. So I was on set, especially when I was Wendy Goodman's assistant, and um, she was doing pictures a lot with Roberto Gili at that time. Most of their stories were produced together, and I was the assistant, so I was doing the production. And I I went on the shoots that were local. Um, Certainly there were no budgets for me to go and shoot Armani and Pantelleria assist when they were shooting, you know, shooting Armani on the island of Pantelleria. I didn't do things like that, but I would assist in the local shoots, which meant mopping the floors and ironing pillowcases and rolling up electric cords, you know, you know, lamps and things like that. I was literally, um, Wendy and Oberto were looking through the camera and saying, Amy, move the pillow, move this, move that, shift this, shift that. I was doing it with um, 
with Fernando Bangochea, who was Oberto's photo assistant. So, I mean, this was an amazing rich history. That's what I'm telling you, like the amount of training and, and, and the experiences I had there were, you know, I was so lucky and it just happened to me. I, I just landed at House and Garden after college, but I was incredibly lucky. And so then uh, you get sort of cold dunked into the world of Vogue. And I'm I'm yeah. curious what that year zero was like for you, you know, like yeah. what, what that 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 cold plunge from right. that very kind of I don't want to say motherly, but you know, very kind yes. of a very kind of warm, cuddly, yes, decorating world, even though it has its foibles, like to then yeah. go whoosh into uh early nineties, late eighties, um, you know, Vogue supermodel era. Supermodel era, like, you know, yeah. uh what was that like? Dan, how did you know? You just said it all. I'm so impressed <laughs> that you, 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 like you just said it. That's exactly what it was. Well, so yes, yeah, so House and Garden closed. As I told you, Mr. Newhouse said it was, it was redundant at that point with, with, um, AD and, and House and Garden. And this wonderful man named Charles Gandy, who had been the creative director at, um, at House and Garden. And I was, he didn't have an assistant. And I often assisted Charles, just, I just loved him. And I'd be like, Charles, why are you standing at the copy machine? Let me do that, you know? So we became very friendly. And he was another great mentor to me at House and Garden. And he, he left House and Garden before it closed. And he went to Vogue. And he worked with Anna. And he wrote features, tons of cover stories. He was a huge talent and a great writer. Um, and when house and garden closed, he, he told Anna about me, you know, she was like, Oh, is there anyone, you know, young there who I should meet and talk to? There were a couple of jobs open. And he said, you should talk to Amy, you know, Wendy Goodman's assistant. And HR called me the same day that the same day house and garden closed, I was called to go and interview at Vogue. And I remember thinking, Oh, can I, can we do it tomorrow and get my outfit together? And they were like, no, now she's ready now. And that was my introduction to Vogue and to Anna and to the fashion world. Very fast moving world, you know? Mm not slow like design and architecture at all. Um, and I I didn't, you know, I went, there was a job in the beauty department as a beauty associate. I can't say I totally understood what beauty meant, but being a visual person and a storyteller, I consider myself a style journalist. You know, I can write about a lot of different things to be, to be honest, I think like you. And um, I just thought, well, let's work at Vogue. Vogue was hot you know it was like super hot it was just a on fire kind of product you know um mm. deeply influential what did you learn about beauty what did you learn about beauty after you know now you're looking back you're like what, business what you beauty is business mm. and i'm still and it was a, it was again just what you know my career's just been a, a series of really lucky things that happened to me and I was always open and receptive to the things happening. I was very open and receptive to House and Garden. And then Vogue was a much tougher place for sure. But I was open and receptive to what was happening. Um, I met incredible business people. Like, you know, I was interacting with Leonard Lauder regularly. Um, and I learned I learned that beauty, you know, beauty's a business. I always said the beauty business, you know. Mm -hmm. um, I it was there in a golden time of seeing incredible female entrepreneurs, not only female, but inc there were many. Um, also, companies like Mac, they were all being acquired. Stila was a female company, Bliss Spas, Marcia Kilgore, who started Bliss, which was a, 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 just a juggernaut, you know, in, in the in the in the business. There was nothing like it. Um, Stila was Janine Lobel, you know, these incredible businesses that women, not only women, like Mac was a Canadian company, 
but they were started by entrepreneurs and then they were acquired later often by Estee Lauder, but sometimes L'Oreal. And I was there in that heyday of mm -hmm. these businesses growing by these very visionary people who were entrepreneurial and it was a whole new kind of beauty. It was mm -hmm. something different from like your mother's makeup, you know, or from mass makeup like CoverGirl and Revlon. So I, I watched these creative people make these products and eventually sell them to big companies. And honestly, Dan, it, it was so interesting. Um, and for me, I consider my job now, it's a blend of creativity and business. It's both. You cannot be a successful editor-in-chief. You know, I launched and founded Team Vogue and, and then I think reinvented AD. And it's always about being receptive to business, being open, being curious, being receptive to new technology, 100%. Mm -hmm. And marrying creative and business, marrying creative and business. You know, that's what we do. And I feel that each step of the way, um, you know, was an incredible uh, moment for me in learning. And Vogue was creativity and business, both. Watching Anna, how she operated and made this incredible, huge, you know, empire. And for me and my little fiefdom, I mean, the beauty industry was just ginormous and drove so much, so much, you know, money into Vogue and into Condé Nast. Um, and I, I learned a lot. And, and when it comes to Vogue, you know, especially with the movie and, you know, it kind of captures this place in the public's imagination about style and fashion and any TV show about a character that goes to work at a fashion magazine is somehow patterned off of Vogue. What do you think is the most common misconception about life? Um, I, I think at the time it was four times square, maybe. Um, uh, life in that, you know, in that office and working in that sort of whirlwind, as you explained, of back then, especially of personalities and, you know, contributing editors and Marie Chantal of Greece and yes, you know, it was and really kind of it, 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 it was it, it certainly read as glamorous and you know all the outside part the magazine was glamorous and the parties were glamorous but the day-to-day -day work was grueling you know and that's probably the misconception it, you, people just don't you know why would they want to ruin the fantasy but like it was just grueling hard work um and we didn't have the technological tools we have now. You know, I can remember after the fashion shows in Europe, we would wait weeks for, you know, those plastic sleeves to come in with slides in them. And that would be the backstage images, which we would use for our stories. And then we would duke it out for the slides and somebody would steal the slides for their pages. And, you know, um, it, we didn't have the kind of technological tools that we have now at our fingertips at our desk. So it was really, really hard. Um, and even communication was hard. I, I, yeah, I'd say that was probably the misconception was just uh, that it was sort of a, a, a grind in its own way. But also so satisfying to make a big fat magazine. Beautiful. And people were waiting for it. You know, they were like eagerly waiting for their Vogue to arrive or, or their house and garden. Because again, it was a different time. You didn't have Instagram. You didn't have the internet until like, I don't know when it was well into the late 90s it wasn't what it is now so this is where people got their information whether it's about fashion beauty social life culture food you know it was all coming through newspapers and magazines and team, 
Teen Vogue, Teen like Vogue. Teen Vogue, they yeah. they kind of go, hey, this was it. It had already been around when you had started. No, it was, no, Teen Vogue was Anna's idea. Teen Vogue was Anna's idea. She was inspired by her daughter B, uh, who was, you know, I I met B when she was five years old. Um, now B's a mother of a, a little child, so I have known her a long time. And and Anna was inspired by B, and it was totally Anna's idea. She wanted to do Teen Vogue, so she asked me to do it. Um, you know, over the course of the 10 years I worked at Vogue, I was, yes, I became the beauty director. I also did the section called Index, which was a fashion section in the back. And I did special onsert magazines for different ad clients. I just, I thrived and I grew there. And what I learned with Anna, and I'm going to answer your Team Vogue question. What I learned there is that, you know, a really good manager of people sees their talents before they see them themselves and pulls it out of them much like a ballet teacher who makes you do stuff you didn't think you can do and won't let you stop until you do a triple pirouette, you know? Um, and Anna's like that. She could see if you had like the guts, the grit, if you could make it, you know? And so she and I get along great, you know, because she's a worker, I'm a worker. Um, and we were like aligned on what we were doing, you know? Um, and she was the one who asked me to do Teen Vogue. And I distinctly remember saying, I don't really know anything about teenagers. I had like one little baby when she asked me to do it, I think. Um, and she said, you're going to figure it out. You know, what do you, I know you'll what figure she, it out. What did you think? What did she pull out of you? Think bigger. Think broader. Stop being in your box. Um, open your mind and, and, and you know, challenge yourself. Um, so I did four test issues while I still worked at Vogue. That was a particularly grueling time for me. I had, as I mentioned, a little baby and I was doing a lot of work at Vogue and I was also making these test issues with not a lot of resources or help. Um, but there were a few great people at Vogue who were interested in what I was doing, namely like Camilla Nickerson, who's like a genius fashion stylist, just the best. And she thought it was fun because she loves streetwear and it was a chance to work with young upcoming models and do things she couldn't do in Vogue you know, with denim, with like things that were not, this was a different time. You didn't really shoot a lot of jeans in Vogue. You know what I mean? So she had a lot of fun. Camilla was a great collaborator on Team Vogue. And I give her a lot of, um, you know, gratitude for making it so cool and giving it a look, you know, because she's such a great stylist. So I did a lot with her and, and other people. But it, it was a grueling time in my career doing the test issues. There were two a year. So it was like a fall and a spring issue. Uh, I should say spring and then a fall issue. And then um, that took two years, you know, and I didn't really know where it was going. Um, but at a certain point, um, I was called in by Mr. Newhouse and that was in 2002. It was in, um, really it was in June of 2002 because it was like a week before I had my, my second child. I was heavily pregnant. And he said, I've um, decided to launch Teen Vogue as a standalone and you're going to be the editor-in-chief. So I think I was one of the last editor-in-chiefs that he named and selected um, and that he worked with. You know, as I worked with him for years showing him the book, which was also incredible. So June, I had my baby and I spent the summer pulling my staff together for Teen Vogue and we uh, came back to work in September, came to work in September and did our first issue, which had Gwen Stefani on the cover her Brits shot it and it was a February, March of 2003 cover. So I ran Team Vogue for 13 years. It was definitely editor-in-chief training. Um, and we did a lot of things first in the company. Um, we were, you know, our website was vibrant. I was the first person to have a social media manager in the company. Um, and I, I learned a lot about um, 
about social media at that time, it was like, you know, MySpace. <laughs> right. And Tumblr, uh, possibly. Yeah, and Tumblr, exactly. Yeah. So, um, and I hired a lot of incredible people there who've gone on to have amazing careers. We had Elaine Welteroth, uh, Phil Picardi, Emily Emily Weiss, who started Glossier, you know, um, just there was a lot of talent that came through our doors. Eva and, Chen. Oh, of course. Yeah. And, you yeah. know, thinking about Teen Vogue, you know, back then, I mean, today teens create their own content on social media. But at the time, you were creating content for teens, in, which in a way that was very common at the time. And there were a lot of teen magazines. Uh, many of them have kind of fallen on hard times or closed or evolved or gone online or whatever. Um, and, would you say, you know, you did you learn about sort of like American youth by being essentially like the the a kind of um, a Pied Piper for this sort of American fashionable youth culture at the time? Mm -hmm. Well, Teen Vogue was incredibly successful. I, it was so gratifying to work on something that was so well received by the industry, by advertisers, and mainly by the audience. Like all those three, and this is Editor-in-Chief School, I learned you got to have all three. The industry, the advertisers, they can align, but not always, because the industry is like the broader group of creative people, you know? And then the business, the advertising, and then the audience. It all aligned at Team Vogue, it was such a unique product because the other team books, and you're right, there were many at that time. Uh, there was like Teen People and L Girl and um, Seventeen, and I don't know if you'd call Jane a teen book per se. And there are a few others that I'm forgetting now. Um, there were like five, and slowly they all fell away. But Teen Vogue is still around. You know, it's it's not a print publication anymore. And I, I left in 2016, and it, it was had a few more print issues after that. Um, but it was a real success story. It just out of the gate, it just exploded, and it was it was so successful, and it was so fun to work on. Um, 2008, the crash was where things changed, and also um, the the world changed so much. I mean, by that point, it was just such a digital world, you know. Um, but your comments are very astute, Dan. You know, at that time, kids didn't make their own content. Yeah, maybe they had Tumblr and, and they had um, and MySpace, but it was all kind of rudimentary. And the audience just embraced our message so much, which was a very girl-centric message. The other, what I was starting to say is the other team books that existed, and there were a lot of them, um, tended to be very boy-centric. You know, they were ostensibly for young women, but they were really about boys and men. It was always about how to attract men, and which is, which was not the point of view we took at all. We didn't do stories, you know, they were just full of stories about how to land a boyfriend and games you should play to intrigue guys and, you know, kissing and not kissing. And our information was matter of fact. We did stories on sexual health what you need to know to be healthy and safe, fact-based, fact you know. Um, we just didn't treat women as an appendage to, you know, a man or like how to get a guy. And they loved it. So, you know, times have changed. But at that moment, it was a radical message. And one of the things that always sticks out in my mind is that um, in my memory of Teen Vogue, especially in, in the early print days was the kind of the euro size the little um the smaller kind of like it was a, tr a trim size as we call it in in magazines but like it was half the size of a normal magazine so you could kind of fit it in your pocket and i was always curious what that also seemed like really 
oddly radical and <laughs> risky back then. Now, now it's easy to laugh about it, but I mean, it was kind of a big deal at the time. And uh, was that what was that like? It was Mr. Newhouse's idea, hundred percent. You know, again, like I was there when it happened. I'm not telling you things that aren't accurate. He said, I want to test the small size that they had already been doing glamour in the UK at the small size and possibly in other markets. I just don't recall. And he said, I want to test this size in the US. And he wanted to test. I mean, he was a genius, you know, and he loved magazines and he loved magazine editors. I loved working for him. Um, he wanted to test that size in the US. He wouldn't risk taking any established magazine. You know, you weren't going to do that with Vogue or GQ, you know, um, and he just had this instinctive, I'm going to try it with Team Vogue. And it was the perfect idea. It made us different. As you say, cute. You could fit it in a backpack or a purse. Distinctive, cute, different. Um, he had the right instinct about it. He absolutely had the right instinct about it. The only place where it hurt us was that it wasn't standard size for racks at checkouts. Mm. And it, and at that time, you had a big newsstand. That, huge. You know, you'd sell four, you'd have sell half a million copies on the newsstand. Yeah. This doesn't exist anymore. It and does that, not exist anymore. Did that make it not work well enough that they didn't m use this trim size for other titles? People, I think that that is true. Yeah. I think it because it was irregular that they didn't do it for anybody else. But it stayed for Team Vogue as just a point of difference that was cute. It may have hurt us a bit on newsstands. I, I can remember being in all these endless newsstand meetings like, well, it slides down in the rack and all you can see is like the, the top of the logo Team Vogue at the top. You can't see the image of the celebrity or the cover lines, but you know, we never changed it. I think there were places that made a special rack for us too, as I recall now. I haven't thought about this in a long time, Dan, but um, they did. And I think the bigger takeaway is like, wow, look how technology's changed. We used to fuss about the size of a magazine and a rack in a physical brick and mortar store that people would go in. And guess what? We did sell hundreds of thousands of copies a month. Um, and now that's a non-issue, you know. But yeah, Team Vogue was an amazing place. And, you know, fast forward a little bit to 2016, um, you're, you're at Teen Vogue and, and, and talking about, uh, maybe, um, frank discussions about physical health or, and, and hemlines. And then all of a sudden comes another knock on the door about architectural digest. Was that, Yeah. take me through that. Okay. Well, I, I ran, um, Teen Vogue for 13 years and, um, I think I had accomplished the things I wanted to do there. And as I said, the the world had changed so much. You know, um, kids, you said it yourself at the beginning, kids are making their own content. People were on, kids were on YouTube. You know, I could see the writing on the wall. I had two young daughters. You could see, rather than looking at a magazine, they would just open their YouTube and look at some girl in her bedroom in Michigan doing eyeliner. Um, and I, I knew before people in the industry were talking about it. I was living it through the kids who read the magazine and my own kids. And I was like, this is changing mm -hmm. in a big way, you know? Um, and also the adult magazines had started to go so young. So the things that Team Vogue did, um, our look, our fashion look, our celebrities moved into the, into the adult world, you know, if you think about it. Elle, Vogue, mm -hmm. Harper's Bazaar, were suddenly shooting our celebrities 
um, instead of the like mature women that they used to do. Um, so I, I saw the big shift. I saw the influence of Team Vogue on, on everything that was was happening, you know, in the market. And I, I really was ready for my next challenge, but I didn't know it was going to be AD. This was, you know, again, Anna, you know, taking me by surprise, but aware of, of me, you know, my talent, my abilities, my abilities to manage people um, and and my creative abilities. And she just came to me and she said, I'm, I'm thinking about making a change at AD. Would you be interested? And I was like, mm-hmm. And so don't forget, like, this was my dream job, but you've already heard, I started at House and Garden. Anna knew that. She hired me from House and Garden. You know, um, I think she and I have a, a long-term bond over gardens, interior design, and, and architecture. Um, she once edited House and Garden herself. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's a kind of a mutual obsession, I would say. So there are a lot of people when I started at AD who would say things like, oh, she's a fashion person, Teen Vogue. But they didn't know. And why should people know your whole story? They're, it's not their job to read your resume and you know, be bored by it. But if, if someone would listen or if they'd take a, a moment, I'd say, hey, I was trained to house and garden. I mean, I just told you the photographers and the stylists and the editors I, I worked with. Um, and then, you know, I pivoted and Vogue was a very enhancing place for me. If I hadn't worked at Vogue and then Team Vogue, I wouldn't be the editor I am now at all at AD. You know, the reason I know Mark Jacobs, who was my first cover, is because I worked at Vogue and Team Vogue. Mm. And when I got the AD job, it was May of 2016. That's when your September issue, it should be shot. Mm. But instead, I was just planning it because I started here after Memorial Day. And I came, there was nothing here for the September issue, nothing I wanted to use for my first issue. And especially coming from a fashion background, I was like, this has to be really good. You know, people don't want to hear, oh, well, you you planned the issue a year in advance and she just started three months ago. No, I was just like, I'm doing a triple pirouette. I'm going to knock it out. It's going to be a quadruple. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I'm knocking it out. Mm. And so I got on the phone. I didn't even have an office at AD yet. I was doing this for my Team Vogue office. I started calling all my friends. I'm obsessed with interior design, Dan. I mean, I'm obsessed. My whole life has been talking to people about their homes. And I just started calling my friends. I called Gianna, uh, Giovanna Engelbert uh, and got her house into that September issue. I called Amanda Brooks and got that amazing house in the Cotswolds and called Mark Jacobs for his townhouse in Manhattan, which I knew he had been renovating and I knew about his art collection um, because many of my friends are artists and are in his collection. He's collected them. I knew mm. what he had. And he gave me his house. Boom. And all these people, by the way, turned on a dime. I was like, I have to shoot in two weeks. Wow. Well, that's, that, listen, that's the skill set you need to use every that's day the now. That's the skill set. <laughs> and so that's something you get from fashion. Move fast. And all those fashion people, they're used to it too. They're not slow. They're like, yep, I'm ready. You know, and Mark, I still say thank you to Mark for that cover. It was amazing. I put his dog Neville on the cover with his Instagram handle. Um, the printers at Condé Nast thought it was a mistake, but it was me announcing it's a new day and and making a digital stake too and a younger feel. Um, and I still thank Mark for that cover for coming through for me. It wasn't easy. He was like, you know, telling someone you need to shoot in the next two weeks is not convenient. Um and you know what he said to me, Dan? He said, well, I was saving it for you. Oh, well, that's pretty good. Maybe he knew something. Well, <laughs> Maybe he knew something no, more than another. It's not literal. It's not a literal thing, like literally saving for you. He was saving it for the right thing. His house was amazing. 
And he, I understood what he meant. What he was saying to me is I'm, I'm waiting. I was waiting. He was waiting for the right moment to like put his amazing house and his incredible art collection out there in public. And that offer of the cover of AD, the September cover, my first cover, you know, it was, it felt like the right thing for him, you know? So I, I really, he's a, he is an incredible human being. And that, that comment to me is really, it's really sweet. And was there a, 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 you know, what was that first meeting like when you're taking over? Was there a conversation of like, you know, AD has this extremely long, uh, sort of glorious history in, in design and, and here are the challenges and where we'd like to go in the next 10, 20 years? Um, the amazing thing about Condé Nast is people tend to let the creative set their own, chart their own course, It's which is one reason I've worked here for a long time and really loved it. Nobody told me Teen Vogue has to be this way. It was all my gut, like this is what it's going to be, you know? Um, and so I did the same thing with AD. It's like it needs to become, it needs to get into the digital age. It needs to not be just a print product, but certainly continue as a print product. Um, and it needs to, you know, innovate and broaden its reach, broaden its audience, um, be more a part of the cultural conversation, um, and certainly, you know, be buzzier and less stately. I described it as a sleeping beauty. And I, it was a sleeping beauty. I knew that it could be so much more. And I will say, Dan, when I, when I, you know, when it was announced that I was coming to AD, there was that set of people who said, oh, she's a fashion person. How can she do this? And there was another set of people who said to me, why do you want to do AD? It's so boring. It's my granny has it. It's in the dentist's office. You ran this amazing thing, Team Vogue, that was so culturally buzzy and young. Why do you want to go to this old thing? And I was like, oh, no, no, this is Sleeping Beauty. I'm going to change it, you know. So I, I had a lot of confidence, you know, that I could do a triple. And that's what I did, Dan. You know, that's what I did. I was just like, I'm going to build up the social media following. I'm going to build a video business here, which you see we have a huge business on YouTube, 6 million subscribers, far more subscribers on YouTube than print subscribers, you know. Um, so that's like a huge audience, you know, uh, seeing your your content. Um, build the website, which we did, um, and build an e-commerce business, build AD Pro, build Clever. Now we're done the AD Pro directory. Like that was my grand plan is that we would bit by bit build out our digital audiences you know, first was social and web so that we could launch new businesses, which you see with pro and directory. Um, so I'm really gratified that it, the industry and the audience were there with us and that we were able to, you know, to achieve that while maintaining um, the prestige and authority of the magazine. And also it's a lucrative piece of our story, but now we're not just print revenue. We have a much broader base of revenue. It's good to be diversified. And this is, I go back to business. You asked me about doing beauty um, at, at Vogue. And I, I really, you know, I really understood. I mean, you can't spend too much time in that industry and not be exposed to people thinking about business, you know. Um, in the fashion industry, the, it's a little more sheltered, I think, you know. And, you know, when it comes to Architectural Digest today, how do you define it? How do you, you know, I, I don't know, I don't think you probably run into people who don't know what it is at all, but do you, do you have a way of thinking about that simple question of what is AD? Well, 
it's the International Design Authority. You know, that's what it says on the spine of the magazine. And I still go by that. And I'm the global editorial director. So I actually oversee and work with all the other editions globally. Um, and I, I always would have to come back to that as its core mission, you know, the International Design Authority. I think we want to challenge, inform, and entertain, and inspire audiences wherever they are. So that's whether they're on YouTube, whether they're on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. We've had a very successful TikTok launch, whether they're a print reader, whether they're on YouTube, you know, um, we have to sort of hit all those different pieces, entertain, inspire, challenge, lead, influence. To me, that, that's what AD is. And, you know, within the design space, of course, always within the design space. And I've seen, I felt that AD could have a lot of elasticity. What I mean by that is that it didn't have to just be this stately grand thing, you know, rich houses for old rich people. I felt that was very limiting demographic. Like, where do you go? Where do you go from that if your whole audience is like older people? I mean, you have to be bringing in new young people. Before we return to Amy Astley, a word from our sponsor, Ann Sachs. In the world of inspired interiors, there are a few brands that have become synonymous with timeless American style. As an interiors editor for nearly 20 years, one name comes up again and again, Ann Sachs. Ansac's latest achievement is the introduction of stone slabs. The product designers at Ansac's have traveled the world to source a curated assortment of the world's most premium stones, each with their own unique and dramatic veining and moment to create that organic, elegant feel in interiors. The company has just opened its newest slab gallery in New York's Long Island City, after its first two in Dallas and Nashville. The inspirational new flagship location in Long Island City is a combination showroom and slab gallery, showcasing the full assortment of tile and slab collections, as well as in-stock vanities, lighting, and plumbing fixtures. For more information about any Ansax tile or stone, or to find a showroom near you, visit www.ansax.com. Before we return to Amy Astley, a word from our partner, Polyform. With its Italian roots dating back to 1970, Polyform is the ultimate purveyor of design-driven products that outfit nearly every inch of the modern home. From its stunning kitchens and dreamlike storage systems to sleek and inviting sofas. Using decades of knowledge and mastery of Italian style, Polyform's incredible designs go beyond the ephemeral trends we see so often today. Instead, they exude a kind of recognizable elegance you'd expect from a company headquartered in Brianza, near Le Como. As the Grand Tourist is always shopping for his next remodel, or just dreaming about it, Polyform has many instant icons to consider. The Brera Sofa by Jean-Marie Massaud, named after the famed design district in central Milan, sets a new standard for universality. It has clear architectural lines without seeming harsh, and through its many clean line elements, can be configured either rounded or straight. Best of all, its couture-like details on the upholstery, as well as leather details for the base and armrests, make it a tailored dream. Oh, and the cushion covers are removable too. We're sure Amy would approve. For more information about the Brera and all of the brand's incredible works of design, visit polyform.com. And wh- how would you say, you know, if you compare your your house and garden days, you know, in the beginning of your career to your, your time now to AD, you know, 
Is there anything that you've shifted in terms of your own taste about design that maybe is a little bit different today than it first was? Yeah, I mean, it's such a good question because even the word taste, I almost now avoid it, you know, because I think it's a loaded word and it's kind of limiting. And yes, when I was young at House and Garden, it was all about the taste of the editors and it was um, a, a highly um, curated environment. And and my AD is also highly curated and edited. I present what I want to present. Um, but I also think there's a real trap and kind of an old think to just saying, this is good taste and this is what we show and this is bad taste and we don't do it. Um, because I, I just don't think it's modern, you know? I don't, I think it closes out a lot of possibilities and a lot of people. And in the end, AD really is about people. It's about the people living in the homes. Because what do people talk about and what do they remember? Not a sofa or a table. You know, some obsessed people remember a wall treatment, but they remember the feeling they got from the magazine, the people in it, the energy. You remember Dakota Johnson's charming house, you know, in her garden, wherever you experienced it, in print, on YouTube, on social. Um, I just did Inez and Venude's house in the Hamptons. It was on the cover with the two big Noguchi lanterns. I love that house. I love their style. I love their, their loft in New York City, which was also an AD. You might visually remember that and, oh, those amazing photographers who lived there. You might remember Drake. Drake's you know, huge mansion that he built from the ground up in Toronto. And Drake's an interesting person, you know, he's a culturally relevant person. And that, I think, we just did RuPaul in May, in May we did RuPaul. Um, it's interesting to see how RuPaul lives. And I'm, I'm interested in his taste, his story. You know, in the end, this goes back full circle. I'm a journalist. I'm telling other people's stories. It's not that interesting for me to keep telling my own story, even though that's what we've been talking about. My taste, my taste. I have taste. I have my own taste. Of course I do. And there are houses I love and houses I don't love, but I don't live in them, you know? And so I've had to really train the people around me, the staff and outside people Mm. within the company, within the industry, you know, sometimes, okay, damn, people will say to me, oh, I really hate this house, so-and-so's house. I just hate it. I would never want to live there. There's a comment you'll see online. And you know, it's all I can do to say, well, you don't live there. Good for you. You don't live there. Mm -hmm. You know, it's their house and you just should open your mind to it. Like, do you think RuPaul's an interesting person? Just open your mind to how RuPaul's living there's a ton of creativity there, you know? So I just like presenting different ideas about how people might live. And I don't want to be trapped into this little tiny box of like, we just show this one kind of taste. I mean, when I got to AD, certainly it was tasteful. Yeah, you know what I mean? But I was just letting that land. Like, I want it to be culturally relevant. I want it to be culturally buzzy. I want it to be something people are talking about. And that is through showing a variety of different ideas about how you could live and different people, you know? And obviously in this world of things like you mentioned, like TikTok and, 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 and YouTube, which is such a huge part of the AD world now, has it been hard to adapt this sort of traditionally trained editorial mind that you mentioned into a world of five second video clips and 
uh, memes and things like that? Or is, you know, wh- what has that sort of ex- experience been like? I mean, it hasn't been hard for me because um, I'm a Gemini. <laughs> I like communication. I like storytelling. I mean, this is the theme of our whole talk, right? You must say, I'm a bookworm. I love storytelling. I like putting words and pictures together, however that may be. I'm open to new technology. It's like the kiss of death to not be, you know? Um, so for me, no problem to embrace YouTube, to embrace video, to embrace, I love TikTok. Like we just take our open doors and cut them down. And it's like this whole new generation of people are discovering, you know, even old open doors like Dakota Johnson that they may not have seen. It was several years ago, you know? Um, so I, I really welcome it. It's a new way to use your content and to build audiences. And I think for my staff, like the people who work with me know, they're on board. Not everybody has the same skills, but we have, you know, sets of people who do video, who do social, uh, who do print. Um, The print editors contribute, especially to the website. And then we have a web staff too, which makes it sound like I have a huge team and I don't, but we're very hybrid and we're, we work in synergy together. You know, I look at all the content. I always talk to my team about wringing out the content. If you're using it in print, how do you use it in YouTube? How can you use it on the web? How does it work in social? What videos can be cut for TikTok? Um, just getting more out of what we produce, you know. And now you've you've in the most in most recent years you've added global to your uh, to your title, and you're now overseeing uh, lots of ads around the world from uh, I'm assuming you know Spain and France and uh, and, and many others. Um, what has that experience been like? What have you kind of, you know, learned from kind of now being, um, you know, the, the, the godmother of, of (laughs) all the ADs from around the world, each with their own unique, um, local perspectives? Yeah. I mean, your, your questions are really, you know, you're a design journalist. They're well phrased because you you basically just said it in your in your question. They each have their own local perspective. Um, each of the editors in every market, they're an expert in their market, um, both their audience and and their local the talent. You know, so I leave them alone as much as I possibly can. I advocate for them and try to get them more resources. I think I've. I've, I've worked very hard to turn them into digital um, thinking editors, which they weren't. Um, and they've all, um, you know, shown a lot of growth uh, in, in digital. Um, but the main thing that's really happened through this globalization at Condé Nast and at AD is content sharing. I mean, that's in the end what it comes down to, the syndication and content sharing. And they've been really, really positive. I think each AD has managed to keep its own um, unique flavor for its market. But now people have access to the shoots from all over the world. I look at things from India and Mexico, certainly from the four Europeans. Um, They look at my things. They can take my things. And you can take it kind of in real time. You know what I mean? You don't have to wait three months. In the old days, you could have it and syndicate it, but not for 90 days. Mm. In the digital era, who wants the story 90 days later, you know? So um, we just dropped our first global cover um, on Tuesday, which was um, John Legend and Chrissy Teigen. It was the first time all the ADs have uh, done the same cover, but everybody did their own take on it. So India and the U.S. had the actual celebrity couple family on the cover, and the others used an image from the house, which they felt, you know, suits their market more. Um, so 
for me, it's always just been letting them be as independent as they can, knowing their markets, um, but giving them access to, you know, the content sharing, which honestly, the syndication is amazing boon for the website because you have so much more content and who who has the you know who who has the budget to create that much more content nobody but if you can just start pulling it particularly they can pull from the US um because we 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 were the biggest you know um but we also pull from them you know and the Europeans share a lot so uh, honestly it's just been a great experience and a successful experience for us and of course it opens my eyes i see amazing projects i wouldn't otherwise seen i've learned so much more about design in india in mexico yes in europe um but we've always worked very closely with european based designers you know and how many titles altogether um we also have china which is a license um i think it's 10 and we're launching the middle east oh, okay yeah, the Middle East will be the first issue will be out in October. So um, it's for Europe, it's Germany, Spain, Italy, and France. Uh, then there's the US, there's Mexico and India, China's a license. Um, and the Middle East is is coming. And there are a lot of designers that listen to this podcast. If if you had to give them a few nuggets of, of golden advice about succeeding in the world of design today, whether it's how to get into AD or just in general, um, what would you what would you tell these uh, young designers listening? Well, the thing is, when I started at AD, also, I, it was very frustrating to me, and I am going to answer your question, but I hated saying no. I had to say no all day long. It was gutting. It was really depressing for me and for the other editors too. But you know, you just had a magazine and we could only run about five houses in an issue, maybe six in a big issue. So basically you're saying no to people all day long. I knew when I arrived, I have to build a vibrant website and vibrant social media space where all these wonderful projects can be seen, celebrated, promoted, um, but I can't put them all in the magazine. And it was hard, Dan, you know, in the beginning people were print centric. They didn't want their house to be, you know, their project to be shown on the website, they considered it, you know, um, less than. Um, and I worked with, I had hired this wonderful man, Keith Pollock, who I go way back with, and I love, he's at West Elm now. And I was like, Keith, we got to make this website very desirable, so that we can help show all these projects, we want to show them, we don't want to say no all day long. So I'm really proud that we managed to make a website and, a, and social platforms that are huge, have millions and millions of eyeballs on them, you know, more more eyeballs than even on print. I know print is beautiful and prestigious. And now people are excited to have their projects shown on our website and on our social platforms. So I am answering your question, but I just wanted to back up and say that was a huge effort. That wasn't nothing. That's like a lot of people working to make a, a compelling space where we can show so many more projects, you know, than just in the magazine. So I'm very happy that that worked. And we do that now. So there's there is a lot of space, people should submit their projects, um, they should submit them to the right people that is Alison Levisseur is our um, decorating director. Um, we have two editors who work on clever, which is more small space living. So you can send, you know, I, I don't want to say more modest projects, because that sounds pejorative. But you know, a designer's visual, they can see if their project might be better suited to clever. Um, which is more clever living, or if it's more suited to sort of AD classic, submit photos, take good quality photos. Um, 
and um, keep at it, you know. And also Madeline Luckle. I should have said Madeline Luckle. She oversees um, the home tours for ad.com. She's great. She responds to people same day, next day. We don't let projects sit around anymore like the old days, which were notorious. We quickly respond to people. We let them know if it's good or bad news so they can move on. Um, send good quality pictures, send final photography if you can. We vastly prefer it. We don't spend a ton of money on shooting projects. We spend some shooting projects for ad.com, but if you can provide good, well-styled, well-lit professional photography, it's, it's better. Um, keep trying to talk to those editors, say, what are you looking for? And honestly, look at our Instagram and see what we choose, because here's something people don't understand about about the social platforms. Just putting up tons and tons of projects isn't efficient. You want to put up projects that are intriguing enough to people that they go to the link in the bio and they go to the website. Social media drives, the reason we invest in social media is to drive people to the website, which is a monetized space. I'm just going to be quiet and let that sit. People don't understand it. The end game isn't Instagram. For us, the end game is them liking the picture enough on Instagram that they go to the link and they click it and they move to our website where we have traffic and business. So we understand what houses people are going to be intrigued by on our Instagram and what they are not. And think about the visuals of Instagram. It's less cluttered. It's more bright and light. If it's very dense and heavily layered and multi-patterned and dare I say grand millennial, people don't like it as much. And I don't want to flatten out design into just like what people like on Instagram, because if you look at ours, you'll see a wide variety of projects, but it is a reality that people need to think about. Mm-hmm. Is that is it a frustration that sometimes the world is getting flattened to, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's become harder to get people to go to any website, much less uh, your no, own? No, because I... St- I still show what I want to show. You know, we still know if it's a great project and we'll show it. People also like dark and moody. They do. You know, I, um, um, Oliver Freundlich did a great project in a Brooklyn townhouse. It was in the issue a couple of months ago. And I posted, I, I, I posted and AD posted this beautiful black. The bathroom was black with a beautiful light fixture. It, it did crazy well. So like it was moody, you know, um, moody images can do really well, but, um, sort of like cluttered granny people are not responding to it and i think that's fine you know um if we love it we'll still show it you've seen you've seen houses and projects like that in ad you know we we still um very we feel very much that we can use our own judgment um but there there is a method to the madness with 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 instagram house tours um and I would also say to designers, you know, start a little smaller and learn as you go, you know, um, make a relationship with the editors at Clever, you know. And if I were to say, what's the number one thing you love about your job the most at AD? You hate saying no, which of course everyone, that's I always really that. hard to do. But what do you love the most I about it? I hate saying no. I mean, Dan, I love everything. I totally thrive on it. It's um, wildly busy. I'm pivoting all day long from budgets to text to European, a European HR problem, you know, to digital stuff here. I'm just pivoting all day long. Like I feel like air traffic control it actually suits me. I do have the right metabolism for it. 
I've seen people who don't and it's a killer, um, but I can multitask, I can pivot, I delegate like mad, I have a really, I trust my staff so much, I don't micromanage them. I'm always saying, you decide, let me know what you decide. You know, um, I trust them, I think it makes them happy and productive. Um, I mean, I've been managing teams for a really long time now and bossing my family around. So I know how much structure to give to people and how much to let them be independent. I think everybody does well when they understand the where we're moving, you know, um, and why we're doing it. And I try to get a lot of consensus on my team about why are we doing this house? I want everybody to buy into it, you know, um, Sometimes, you know, one thing I'll hear a lot is, oh, AD only does celebrities. Well, it's not true. It is wildly untrue. Just pick up any issue. There are all kinds of houses in there and they're not all celebrities. The celebrities just get a lot of attention, you know, and they're a piece of our business. It's a piece of selling magazines. It's a piece of moving traffic on the website. It's a big piece of YouTube. It's everything. It's not everything because we have other kinds of videos, but it's huge on YouTube. Um, it's big on TikTok. You know, we have a lot of different kinds of content. If you go on the on uh, AD's YouTube channel, you'll see, his, you know, historical house tours, you know, historical things that have a lot of gravitas with architects giving tours. So um, it's a real mix and it's all the pieces together, just like a good dinner party. You don't just want lawyers or you don't just want supermodels, even though they're great to look at. You want a mix of people and I want a mix of experiences when you open the magazine or you go on the um, YouTube channel or you go to TikTok. It's a it's a, a mix and there's a surprise element. You don't quite know what you're going to get. That makes it fun. It makes people come back. You know, who's it going to be this month? But I do think seeing people in their houses is a key piece to it. You know, the personality. Um, and And so for me, you know, every piece of the job is very fulfilling. I said I'm a Gemini. I like communication. I like storytelling. Um, I kind of thrive on the controlled chaos of it all. But if you really are going to make me say my favorite part, it is when a shoot comes in. And I've been saying this my whole career. I've said it at Team Vogue. I've said it at AD. AD I'm on the record saying this. It is when the film comes in. That is the most gratifying moment, not even when it's published, just when we see it as a team. Um, because we've worked so hard on it, you know, like when I did Gwyneth's house, I had been working to get the house for six years. You know, I started working with her and Roman and Williams when I started at AD, we started talking about doing that house. So when the film finally comes in, or I know how long it takes to decorate a house or do the architecture or let the garden come in when the, when the film finally comes in and we just as a team can experience it, not the outside world, it's wonderful. And we, the film comes in from my amazing photo director, Michael Schoem. And it goes to all the editors and we all weigh in and we're like, I love it. I love it. I love it. All the portraits are amazing. The gardens in bloom. Like it's such a moment of gratification and joy. And we feel joy for the homeowners, the decorators, architects, landscape people. It, it's just, I understand what a big moment it is for all those people that it's all come together and we have beautiful pictures, you know, and now we're going to share them. And that's the next step. The first steps acquiring it. And then, and then doing the photo shoot and doing the text and then boom, publishing on all the different platforms. So, you know, that moment when the film comes in is really exciting to me. And um, if I ask one more question, the, uh, this episode will come out, um, you know, after the season starts in September. So who is in, in the mix for, I guess it would be your October issue by then for into mid to late um, September. 
October is going to be really great. Um, I'm really, really proud of it. It has, as always, a lot of surprise. Um, and each house is very, they're all wildly unique one from the other. So I really don't subscribe to the point of view that the design magazine should be just, they're fi it's fine if it's just one thing. You definitely see that where it's just mid-century modern or it's just traditional and pretty and classic. And they, and these people do it really well, but that's not AD. AD is best in design, influential design, best in class. I always say this. So if it's going to be traditional and pretty, it better be tippy top. If it's going to be modern glass box, it better be the best, you know? And I like to show the wide range of ideas about how you could live. Any, any hints of, of what might be inside? Interesting people. Interesting people. <laughs> all They're right, all, well. I'm really proud of all of them. Yeah, I'm just going to have to plead, plead, what is it? Plead the fifth. I, um, the September issue just dropped yesterday, so I just keep it tight. You know what I mean? Like October's just not... The podcast is coming out, but like for, for you and me, like it's still a month away. I'm really just now promoting my September issue. Um, I put up a beautiful on Instagram today, a beautiful project, which is Lauren and Richard DuPont's house in Connecticut. They worked on it for three years with Stephen Sills. And it is just so personal, so pretty. And then Richard's artwork is contemporary. I, I love the juxtaposition. Um, it's totally my kind of house. Mm -hmm. And do you ever do you ever uh, envision a life outside of um, magazines or media? Well, I hope not. You know, AD is a dream job. I've been doing it seven years. I love it so much. As I said, it really agrees with me. Um, I'm sort of like quick, and you have to be moving fast to do it. You know, is it my last magazine? I don't know, Dan. It's what could be better. You know, what could be better than AD? Because it's a mix of design, architecture, landscape, people, personality, celebrity, fashion, culture, and then stuff I don't want to deal with, like politics. I don't have to, <laughs> you know. Thank you to Amy Astley, Andrea Lewis, and everyone at Arc Digest for making this episode happen. The editor of The Grand Tourist is Stan Hall. To keep this going, don't forget to visit our new website and sign up with your email for updates at thegrandtourist.net. And follow me on Instagram at Dan Rubenstein. And don't forget to follow The Grand Tourist on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. And leave us a rating or comment. Every little bit helps. Till next time. 